Hi everyone, I'm Laura Warnod, and this is the Wonder Workers podcast. Wonder Workers is an interview-based podcast where I invite change makers to talk about their experience, their mission, and drive towards impacting the world, and ultimately to inspire, educate, and empower entrepreneurs, business leaders, and owners, and young people on how they can build together a more sustainable world. This community of wonder workers act behind the scenes to lead the world towards a new era of purpose, self-actualization, and innovation. This is a generation who shows no limits to what they can accomplish, no tolerance for dehumanization, and use their uniqueness as a real power to change the world. We want to invite you, responsible leaders, entrepreneurs, young people, and all other listeners in your quest for purpose to give you too the power to change the world. But having powers alone does not make us superheroes. Even them need allies. It's only when we accept our differences, combine our powers, belong and thrive together that our forces can turn into superpowers. We are Wonder Workers, a community of change makers, entrepreneurs, business owners, and aspiring ones who use their superpowers collectively to change the world. So tell me, what are your superpowers? Oh my God, guys, I am so excited for this episode. I've been trying to get Bianca on the podcast for a while, and she's probably one of the most promising entrepreneur, most promising female entrepreneur right now. Today, we talk about her journey from growing up in South Africa and Switzerland to her passion for African history and politics, then working in the hustling world of finance and now building wearing. We also talk about how her parents, both from very different backgrounds and generations, brought her to be the person she is today, this amazing woman, her journey as a female founder and all the courage and confidence, but also the challenging times that she's had and which she learned from. Her experience being in Dragon's Den and her responsibility as a female leader now of a successful business. I mean... It's been such an emotional and powerful episode for me, really. It's full of inspiration, hope, and oh my God, the determination and belief that she has is damn so impressive. And I'm sure that you'll be impressed too. Let me tell you more about Bianca. She's a London-based entrepreneur and founder and CEO of Wearing, the fast tech app that allows you to digitize your wardrobe, see and style everything you own. She believes the future of retail is circular. Wearing therefore aims to empower conscious consumers to utilize the spending power for good. She's all about promoting a culture of caring for your clothes. Bianca is an ex-Goldman Sachs banker turned circular fashion activist. Now a fashion tech entrepreneur, Bianca is the founder and CEO of Wearing. Since launching in January 2022, the app has expanded organically at a rapid pace, taking the Gen Z market by storm and now has over 2 million users. She holds a first-class bachelor degree in history and politics from SOAS and LSE and a master's degree in management from Imperial College Business School. Her work has been featured in leading publications like Vogue, British Vogue, Glamour, Harper's Bazaar, Dragon's Den, BBC Radio and many more. She's received awards like Draper's 30 Under 30, WOTC Award, EU Top 50 Founders, Most Disruptive Tech Award from Unleash and so on. And she's been shortlisted for Draper's Tech Innovator of the Year, Woman of the City Award, We Are Tech, Elle and Boss Babe, finalist and the pitch uk i mean <laughs> what a background when you see the background that she's has you must think oh my god she must be so intimidating she's so successful and she's done all these amazing stuff but she is actually the most lovely and nice person i've talked to in ages and She's so pragmatic, so authentic. I mean, I absolutely love my conversation with Bianca and I hope you will too. Well, let's jump in. Hi, Bianca. Hi, Laura. Thank you for being here. Uh, it's such an honor, really. I was telling you earlier, I'm so, so grateful to have you on the podcast. So 
Thank you so much for being here. Such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Before we start talking about your entrepreneurial and professional journey and wearing, I like to ask my guests to tell a little bit more about their story and who they are um, and kind of introduce themselves as they want to be introduced really. So who is Bianca Rangecroft? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm only 30 years in, so still trying to figure that one out. And I think one deserves a rebrand every decade. Um, so that's what I strive for. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've just turned 30 and I think it's it's definitely the new era. Um, I think of, of startup Bianca, entrepreneur Bianca, which means a lot of different things to me in a lot of different areas of my life. But just to give you a quick recap, um, I'm Swiss South African, grew up in Southern Africa until I was about 10 and then came to live in Geneva in Switzerland with a very interesting sort of family background with a dad who was, you know, in his 90s um, when I was in school um, and with a mother who was a writer, a creative. She spoke nine languages you know, very, very um, exciting parents who'd taken me traveling all over the world. And so I guess, you know, a big part of my identity was obviously South Africa, um, remained very close to it. Um, but I was so excited by Europe, by innovation, by tech. Um, I was super into banking. I love investing. I've been doing that since a very young age under kind of the, the tutelage, for want of a better word, of my dad, um, who's been in, you know, finance his whole life. Um, and so was also then very taken by communities and community building. And that's sort of how I got into the whole kind of circular economy phase. Um, started working on a lot of extracurricular activities during my time working in banking at the beginning of my career, especially around food, food waste, um, and optimization around those processes and how the consumer mindset worked. And then that brought me to fashion, which had always been my big passion in my life because my mom was potentially the best dressed woman I'd ever met. And so then started to examine um, by working. I was really lucky to then move to Goldman to their consumer division, worked on a couple of big fashion tech IPOs. And I think this is where this new Bianca identity started to form and where I was able to detach from let's say this mindset of my parents to say, you're going to do a career in banking. That's what South Africans do. You're a lawyer, a banker, a doctor, maybe an accountant, but that's the remit, right? That's what's possible. And you can do all these other interesting things in your free time, like learn Arabic or, you know, uh, invest in emerging markets or do whatever you want. But, but really that's your destiny. And I moved away from that. And I think my late 20s, early 30s now are all about um, trying to create disruption in the fashion and retail space. And it's something that I've always loved and always wanted to do, but never had that permission. And I suppose created that for myself. Wow. <laughs> I mean, so many interesting points in your story. And I feel like your parents had a huge influence on, you know, your kind of career choices and, and your journey. So I'm curious to know how much of an influence actually your your parents and also growing up from such like I guess a, with a kind of multicultural background and traveling the world and having you know s such different parents in a way one who worked in finance his whole life and the other one who was more of a an artist so yeah how much did they influence you in, in the person you are today? I think tremendously. You know, it's it's funny because I was obviously this only child very sort of late in their lives um, as a second marriage. And, you know, I think a lot of responsibility rested on that, especially when you look at it through the lens of potentially being a carer from a very young age, which is a choice that they made, right? But that was, you know, intrinsically linked to what I could do, what I wanted to do, um, and a big share of responsibility that I felt I had towards them. And so I think I wanted to do things right. You know, I always wanted to kind of study hard, be this like goody two shoes, but actually I was a bit of a tomboy and I wanted to go like hiking. <laughs> At this point, I think, you know, I was very aware that they wanted me to choose a conventional path. Uh, my mother wanted me to study history or politics or PPE. Um, and I remember I missed my offer for Cambridge by like one point in the International Baccalaureate. It was a scandal in my family. And I was actually so thrilled because I wanted to study history and politics of Africa and the Middle East. And I'd gotten an offer from SOAS and LSE to do that. And that's what that was their specialty. Um, and I was like, this is amazing. I'm going to take a gap year. I'm going to go to Jordan, learn Arabic. Like, this is so exciting. Like, this is the best thing ever. And I'm in London. I could like leave Geneva and never see this place again. Yeah. And I think what was really good, though, was that both my parents were like, this is this is not 
right, you know, let's do a master's after this in management, you know, to go and do consulting or economics, and then you can go into banking, like nothing's lost. We need you to be a serious kid. And we need you to, you know, be smart, be able to hold your own. I mean, if you think about it, my father was born in 1930. He was like, I've seen wars. Um, Finance is something no one can ever take away from you. And he was surprisingly pragmatic for a, a man of a different generation, especially towards women. And I think that crazy belief that he had in me around, you can go work for Goldman Sachs, even if you can't do maths for shit, right? <laughs> you know, you got this. You can believe in yourself. You'll get a first class degree. You'll go on to do good masters. You'll go on to, you know, be at one of the top banks or consulting institutions if that's what you want. And I think I was very much driven by that and gave up this idea of becoming an academic. I wanted to do a PhD in obviously African history and politics. And I think I felt quite sad about that, especially when you're hit with the working culture and banking. There are a lot of, you know, issues around that with women and it's just a really, really tough place. Right. But it's also an amazing school. So I think I was definitely very influenced. And I think I tried to preserve some of my identity in my extracurriculars, in the friend circles that I cultivated and nurtured, but yeah, very, very influenced. And I think didn't allow myself to think differently because I felt that I was going to have to be a carer and I had to do kind of what they wanted for me in order to gather this sort of network of skills. And I think the dream was always transferable skills, you know, what all the HR recruiters always say. And it is true. Mm. It is true. Mm. But yeah, I definitely held out on that dream, I think, for a very long time to be able to do my time in banking those four years, um, get to associate level and and then see. I can definitely relate because my dad was also born in the 1940s. So a big age difference as well, different generation. And it's interesting because obviously there are loads of stuff that they teach us in terms of, you know, good values and as you said, important stuff in life, like financials and everything um, that, you know, they didn't necessarily have when they were young because of the war and the economic situation. But I think that especially when we get to like our 30s, sometimes, I mean, I feel that personally, I'm kind of like reflecting now on my journey and experience and being like, "Mm, maybe there, there are things that I would have done. Um, differently but you know it's it's never too late do you think that one day you'll go back to doing politics and African history and following your younger self dream somehow you know I I think it's funny because when we look at identity and, and I think dreams and hopes and also you know to a certain extent the influence of your surroundings I think it is something that can morph into a different dream um and I think one evolves as a person so much that I don't know whether that was necessarily what I always wanted. I think it was myself at the time that wanted that. It's still very close to my heart, but I think, you know, disrupting the landscape that I'm in now is is really an even bigger passion. It's 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 just, you know, all engulfing for me right now. So I don't know to be honest. I think I have a lot of different ideas that touch on these two identities um, and might be able to unite them. Definitely thinking about writing a book, following in my mom's footsteps. And I think I would definitely love in my free time, I'm picking up Arabic now again. And I think I would like to do more reading, more staying up to date. Um, who knows what that would look like post-exit touching wood. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> might, might want to work at a think tank, you know, like a Chatham mm. house or something like that. So one should never say never, but yeah, I think I'm 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 looking deep into what I'm working on now and thinking about ten other startup ideas that we could yeah. um, launch post wearing or in tandem to continue to foster circular initiatives in the fashion space. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I mean, somehow, I mean, we'll talk about wearing in in a bit, but somehow, you know, sustainability is intertwined with politics as well. So there are some some links. There are links everywhere. So yeah, that's very interesting. So if we if we go back to, so then you went to finance, right? That was one of your most formative experience during all those years. So what are the lessons that you learned in finance that helped you build Wearing? I think I remember when I had first launched Wearing, I wrote a Goldman Sachs alumni update, you know, they publish <laughs> yeah. this on their, um, you know, website, et cetera, internal kind of board. But it was very Goldman focused. It was like, you know, the culture of Goldman led me to, mm. you know, become a team player which felt a bit bsy but it but it was all true you know it is it is absolutely right and i think you know there are a lot of different lessons you know 
just fundamental basics around how companies work, you know, how the VC landscape operates. And we've done a lot of early stage investing for, you know, the ultra high net worth and, and family office clients that we were covering, you know, cross jurisdictions. And we'd looked at, you know, typical US startups, but a lot of continental Europe's biggest innovations. We traded those at IPOs, I suppose. You know, there was this really nice kind of vue d'ensemble in terms mm. of how to take something from zero to 100. What are the building blocks? How to start to raise capital? Understanding that whole landscape. Just very easy to start to read up about lean methodologies and how to start companies and product management, all that stuff. Because, you know, inevitably, um, we were kind of taking that in on the sidelines. But I think what was also really important was I was working on the Stitch Fix IPO at Goldman. And obviously, you know, you're kind of selling this equity story. So you start to speak to the management team, you do interviews with customers, you dig deep into the user journey. And I think that was super helpful because ultimately that's what led me to create my own company. Because mm -hmm. I was like, how do these guys not have access to wardrobe composition and utilization data, right? Mm -hmm. They're sending me a box of clothes every month on a subscription basis in tandem with a style quiz, but you don't know what I own, what brands I like, what my sizes and tops, bottoms, shoes, overcoats, whatever, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so I think it was just a really nice platform to start to understand the landscape, what was available, who was doing well, what was happening to companies who had issues, mostly traded companies, right? But we, as I said, we we're also doing a couple of series A to series C deals. And I think that was just super eye-opening because it meant that all of a sudden your brain is trained to problem solve, to try and understand like, what do these guys do wrong? What's missing here? I'm speaking to clients who are using the service and they're not happy. Why? Mm -hmm. And it kind of sparked this whole kind of snowball effect of like, but why? What could we do too? How might we do better? Mm -hmm. And I think that's golden because you start to think analytically about products on a market and how you could do it differently if you were to become an entrepreneur. Mm. And so that's when you started to nurture the idea of wearing, I guess. I remember I took three weeks off to go to this um, hackathon for the Sustainable Development Goals called Unleash. It was in Shenzhen in China just before the pandemic. And I took holidays for three weeks and they were like, you're going to get fired. Like, <laughs> no one does this. Yeah. Like, you have 25 days holiday a year. Like, who do you think you are? Yeah. <laughs> And I was like, no, 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 I, I need to go and do this because I think the flip side of, you know, being at an institution like that and, and fighting so hard for your life every day and trying to be the best and trying to keep up with really, really smart colleagues and a difficult system to get a good bonus and promoted is that you're operating in constant kind of fight or flight and you love what you do. I think a lot of people, you know, in, in, in these banks, un, like they do like what they do, even if it's tough. And, you know, there's a lot of criticism about, you know, lack of innovation and people and culture, but it doesn't make you want to leave in a way. And leaving seems like, I remember I was, you know, floating this idea by my parents who are really hardcore people. And they were like, if you leave, you're on your own. Like, I don't know what you expect from us. Like, how can you be so stupid? You've worked four years to get here and now you're what in your mid twenties and you're going to give it all up. That just seems wild. Mm. And I think I didn't have anyone in my community necessarily, or I didn't have a lot of friends who were entrepreneurs again, cultivating that circle around you, right. To help create a support system if you change or morph into a different person. And so I think it wasn't easy to leave. And I knew that, and I knew that I could never have like a side hustle. I, I'm just not that kind of person. I don't know how you could work the way I was working at Goldman and have, but a lot of people do it and kudos to them, but I couldn't do both and start wearing and do it correctly and like give it my all and put all my eggs in that one basket. And so I thought if I do this hackathon, I've got three weeks to come all the way from ideation to quick prototyping and then I'll have something, right? I'll have done 200 focus groups. I, I will have done something. It's going to kick my ass. It's going to be investment banking hours. I'm not going to sleep. I'm not going to eat. But like, of course, I'm competitive. There's a prize if I can win that and I can get on stage and I can pitch this idea in front of 2,500 people at the Shenzhen Opera House. That's a piece of validation that I need as this type of person, right? Yeah. I can go and quit my job and do. And that's exactly what happened. We won the most disruptive tech award. There were like hues of women coming up to me at the end being like, oh my God, this is the clueless wardrobe app. Like you're bringing the clueless dream to life. Like we've been waiting for this. Like we put people in the moon, but yeah. there's no AI to help us get dressed every day. Like how is this possible? 
And I think I was just overwhelmed by the desire and euphoria that I saw in their eyes, which I was feeling myself as a user because every day I'd go to the bank, wake up at 5.30 in the morning, you know, trying to put together outfits. I had a closet full of clothes, nothing to wear. Mm. And I'm constantly buying fast fashion stuff to kind of fill this, Mm. you know, emotional void or get that dopamine hit or feel like I had something cool and Mm. cute to wear to all these client meetings. And so I think that was the aha moment where I was like, I'm not alone in this. And, you know, it's worth taking the leap. And also I wasn't at the bank. I was outside of my comfort zone. Yeah. And I did it. Wow. I mean, that's that's so inspiring. And I'm sure that many listeners will feel that as well. So when you did this hackathon, how did it work? You were by yourself? Like, I guess you were with a team of other uh, entrepreneurs to be who wanted to pitch their ideas and stuff. But how, how did it work? And how did you, I guess, started to get into this community because I can definitely relate to that as well when I started to like you you know I quit my job and I was like I want to do this I want to start my own business but I felt very alone at the beginning because for 27 years of my life I haven't built a network of friends or people around me who were also entrepreneurs and so that was really difficult at the beginning and I think that many entrepreneurs can relate to that so how was it for you at the beginning and you know when you pitch your idea how did it work I'll go back to the point around unleashed I think it was incredible because you know to your point I came together with I think we were five amazing people I obviously kind of had this idea and I was like guys let's if you don't mind can we roll with mine (laughs) and they were like okay (laughs) leadership potential here (laughs) really obsessed like let's not make the blonde lady angry (laughs) and we went with it but it was amazing because one or two of them were actually really plugged into um, the startup scene, specifically around sustainability. And we had that passion in common. And I think, you know, we were really lucky in terms of the market. I think I started it just at the right time where there was a big kind of paradigm shift in terms of the secondhand market was booming. Sustainability was starting to become something that, you know, big retailers were thinking about, or at least, you know, their PR, CSR departments were like, shit guys, like, this is bad. We need to start to think a little bit outside the box. We can't keep doing this. And above all, consumers were starting to become really interested in this. And I think because I had met these two people at the hackathon amongst a sea of other amazing people who just weren't in my team, right? I almost, you know, walked away with a dozen or so contacts. I mean, loads more really, but a dozen contacts that I had bonded with over this really intense experience who could unlock doors for me. You know, one of them knew, I don't know, someone at H&M that I could talk to. Um, One of them knew two or three VCs that they had previously got investment for for their past startups. And, you know, one of them knew a great community of founders and a club. And, you know, we, and, and, and all of a sudden this whole thing kind of burgeoned into my foray into the startup world. But I think I completely relate to your point. And I think, you know, I was listening to Guy Raz this morning on, (laughs) on the Hinge episode and how the founder of Hinge was saying, you come out of like a HBS, like MBA, or for me, you know, an experience at Goldman Sachs. And you think, I mean, come on, you know, I'm going to do a pitch deck, a business plan. I'm going to go to the VCs. I'm going to just knock on their door. They're going to answer my email. And like, you know, things are just going to go from here and it's going to be fine. And it's like, that's not at all how this world works, right? It's a completely different bubble. And it's it's actually, I found out, you know, a little bit later, it's, it's quite a small bubble, you know, not what you know, but who you know. And I think I was in a very similar position to you, you know, 27, 26. And I was like, okay, like, I thought I had all this network. I go to talks. I was like that girl, you know, who had like a list of like, here are all my extracurriculars. I'm going to go listen to the founder of Monzo speak. I'm going to talk to him or her. And like, you know, like that was how I was operating. And I felt like none of that mattered because none of these people were helpful. And like a lot of my network were, you know, they weren't interested in doing pre-seed or friends of family rounds. They were either too wealthy because they were sort of clients or, you know, that kind of sphere of connections or it was friends and family. And, you know, again, they weren't, they weren't used to the startup world to them. It kind of, you know, it sounded crazy and it was difficult to find mentors. So I think, you know, I was very lucky that I was able to create that community really early on, get into, you know, a couple of accelerators, which looking back, 
I don't know if I would do now, but again, that's hindsight bias because of the amount of equity they, they've taken. But it was a really helpful kind of step to sort of ease my way into this world. And I think I spent a lot of time talking to other founders, which was you know, super helpful. And I, I think it's very basic now, you know, you hear it a lot on podcasts, you know, speak to founders who are, you know, one step ahead of you in the game. But I think at the time for me, it was really great because you then have this, like, you know, I ended up setting up like a couple of WhatsApp groups. We had calls, we did socials, mostly with female founders who were struggling with the same issues that I was, i.e. not being taken seriously, you know, pitching people in their life, what is this vapid digital wardrobe app idea? How is this going to change the world? You know, why don't you go back to banking and going on Dragon's Den and people being like, we'd love to employ you. Like you're, you're smart. Like you got it. And it's like, but I won't fund you, you know, I'll mentor you. So I think that was really helpful. And slowly you kind of build the network. And then once you get it, you get it. But I think it does require a total paradigm shift in the way that you think, the way that you adopt this like gorilla mindset of like, I need to get to this person. I'm going to use everything I got. I'm going to, you know, show up at their office and like be like, hey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so interesting. There's so many points here. Like, I think the first one is something I've thought about is also being a young female founder. It's harder. It's harder because when you talk to people, you know, they don't necessarily take you seriously. They see you as inexperienced, you know, as you said, like the little blonde woman who's kind of pitching her idea about fashion or like whatever so it's really hard to kind of build that credibility with mentors with other business people so definitely and also what I found really interesting is you said like you kind of said it's not because I come from banking that that was easier for me and I think that's very powerful because sometimes I mean as entrepreneurs you know and I do that to myself as well and I'm sure that a lot of people do but you kind of like diminish yourself or self-sabotage you know because you you think oh I don't have that experience I'm not good enough I you know I haven't done that um, I don't have like you know marketing skills or financing skills or whatever but actually that doesn't really matter what you need is just to get going and meet the right people and kind of as you said, build that network of like-minded individuals who can slowly bring you in the right direction. Absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, it is so funny because I remember right at the beginning, you're so idealistic. You're so mm. worried about competitors. Like, and, yeah. Perfection. <laughs> I remember listening to all these podcasts of like, you know, famous exited now entrepreneurs. And they were like, hun, it's resilience. It's being hopelessly idealistic in the belief that what you're building is immense and is going to change the world and is going to succeed. And I was like, that's your advice? Like, really? Like, is, is that what we think is make or break in terms of great entrepreneurs? And I think, you know, it is so helpful to sometimes listen to people who've made it out of the tunnel, especially when it comes to fundraising, because you know, for me, that's proven to be the hardest part of this journey, really surprisingly. And I think that is the case. You have to just believe and be hopelessly idealistic that you're just going to get there, right? You are different. There's something special about what you're building. And that's enough to keep you going because otherwise it just doesn't work, right? And I found that, you know, going through the hardest times, especially in, you know, the current macro environment, you know, I was totally hopeless and depressed. And yet you have to kind of like mm. put on this, you know, facade and keep believing. And if it were for, you know, some of the closest friendships that I've built, and actually really funnily, one of my best friends is also ex-Goldman Sachs. Um, she's running a beauty tech startup now, similar stage to me. And I think having that camaraderie and, and just being able to speak to people who totally get it right because I think the issue with female founders too is you know you're expected to look polished to you know keep your body looking a certain way or your health looking a certain way or feeling a certain way you know manage relationships there's so much more households children that is an enormous mental load vis-a-vis -vis potentially a you know a male founder and so I think it's very difficult sometimes to also manage your relationships with your partner or your friends when you're going through these difficult times and so having other entrepreneurs maybe also female entrepreneurs who get it you can kind of just like download to them and I found that really helpful to me yeah that's uh, that's so true I'm sure there are a lot of other you know female founders or entrepreneurs that can relate to that so what was your most challenging moment while building 
wearing. I guess that's the kind of moment where you're like, why am I doing that? <laughs> why shouldn't I stop, you know? Or what was the most challenging part for you? Yeah, I think, to be honest, I'm, I'm going to say fundraising, but I'm going to say right now. I think, you know, right at the beginning, it was fine that no one believed because it's like, okay, there are a couple of digital wardrobe apps out there. No one's ever done it big. You know, why you? Why are you going to change this game? And how are you going to do it so quickly that you're going to become, you know, number one or number two in the world in like a year? Like, mm. that seems crazy, right? So I was like, okay, fine. No one wants to back this whatever. I put in all my savings, literally everything that I had, the, the typical story where, you know, you know, you go without a salary for two years, like you get this thing to MVP stage, you're starting to get traction. We were doing all the guerrilla stuff we could, and we were, we were really good at it and had this like tiny little team that was hustling. Mm. And I think the first thing in the challenge was trying to find tech talent, female tech talent who understood the product that we were building and affordable machine learning, you know, talent, because that's what we wanted to build, right? We're saying we're democratizing access to personal styling. We're going to not be a digital wardrobe app. We're going to be the first personal styling tool that is AI driven, that's totally scalable to create these unique communities and give women the tools that they need to effortlessly get dressed every day and make the most of what they own, right? And that's the whole circularity initiative. That was really difficult. And I think coming back to the fundraising bit, it's like, okay, you've got this one girl who's got a pretty good corporate background, the right studies, whatever. Okay. You know, she's clearly passionate. There's founder market fit. I don't think anyone would have taken that away from me. I got a lot of good feedback on the table, right? You don't mm. know what there's behind. Um, but then it was like, well, who's your sexy swanky MIT co-founder who's technical. And it's like, I don't have enough cash to be able to get the top talent, right? So yeah. we're doing what we can. We own the tech from the get-go. We built everything in-house. You know, mm. we thought we were doing everything right, but it was really difficult at that stage because we went for a small lean team that was going to try and do things differently, break things, right? Rather than going with these sort of Harvard Business School type mm. CVs in a European context that would like blow investors' minds because we're like, this is just not, we, we can just build it like this. Like, let's be, mm. let's be smart. Um, and so I think that was really difficult. But we then found believers, super users of the app. A big part of my cap table are women who are all, you know, complete like, evangelists of wearing they've got their whole wardrobes on there they've got their stylists using it like you know we really were able to build that I think that was a game changer the challenge now that is much more difficult is that you know this thing took off we're number two in the world we've got 2.5 million downloads in the space of you know 13 15 months <laughs> but then it's like okay well now how do we find investors who understand the vision which is we're going to scale this thing, right? This this needs to be enormous to be able to unlock, you know, B2B monetization options. And they don't. They're like, you know, you know slap a subscription on it. You could be the next Duolingo. And it's like, but that's not what I set out to do. We're here to upend the buy use dispose model. We want this app to be a social space where people can talk about fashion. They can style each other. They can interact, you know, with their, their friends' clothes, their own clothes. They can make the most of what they own. You know, and so I think that really is a challenge now, especially in this really tough market to find the right investment partners who understand the vision and who believe that if we're able to get incredible numbers, like a 5 million user base by the end of, you know, our seed round before series A or at series A, then this starts to really, really become huge in terms of the data flywheel that you're collecting. Um, and I'm not finding that right now. And, and I think that is really difficult, but we'll get there. You know, again, you just got to keep hope. And I think, you know, again, I used to listen to all these podcasts and they were like, you know, we got funding at the 11th hour. We had like seven <laughs> days left of runway. And at the time I was like, this is horseshit. Yeah. You guys are smart people. Most of you, I mean, again, a lot of bias around that. I'm not saying you, you don't even need a university degree to, to yeah. be a successful entrepreneur far from it but I mean you know one would think in a naive setting that actually surely someone's going to come and rescue these founders who have traction they've proven so much and yet I do think that sometimes this is just the way the penny drops that you get saved at the last minute mm -hmm. and you just have to find the people that believe so that is my current challenge and I am uh, yeah 
I'm carrying on. And what keeps you going? You know, I think, again, this is going to sound so cheesy. I, I think it's really, we get so many messages through Instabug every single day. And a lot of them are, you know, really positive. <laughs> and th they're basically demanding improvements, new features, trying to get us to think out of the box. You know, the cutest messages being like, hey, I really love your app. Um, have you guys ever thought of doing X, Y, Z? I feel like that would make my user journey so much easier. It would allow me to do X, Y, Z. It would allow me to feel less overwhelmed. And I read this every morning. I read them every single morning with a team. And we just think, this is so exciting what we're building, you know, and it has so much potential. And I think because I'm a user and I'm obsessed by the problem and every time my company solves the problem for me i.e i'm you know now i've got an investor lunch to go to right after you know our conversation look at me i'm gonna have 15 minutes to get this together i'm gonna open my app and it's gonna give me a good suggestion on what to wear today based on the weather and then i'm gonna go fucking hell you know where it's worth it yeah no that makes sense and i mean i've had a look at your app and i think it's it is amazing i want to actually start using it but i need to do some like spring clearance <laughs> first um, to kind of clean everything and make sure that I keep the essential in my wardrobe. But I think it, it is amazing. And, you know, I was also, because you, you talked about funding and how difficult this can be. And that made me think of the time you went on Dragon's Den, obviously. And I saw the episode and I was so admirative and so impressed by you because I would have been so terrified and they seem really terrifying when you look at, you know, they look at you and they ask you all these tricky questions. I'm a big fan of Stephen Ballard, by the way, and his his podcast. But yeah, I was so, so admi admirative and I thought, you know, like it, they were really tough on you, like really tough. So how did you feel like? after that how are you able to hold on like you you kept smiling and you kept like being super like you seem positive and stuff so yeah I was wondering how did you feel afterwards so I think my dad's vision um was always never say sorry but never do it again and he would always say that you know you miss 100% of the shots you don't take and so those two perspectives had me firmly believing in my capabilities on the one hand But also thinking, I don't need to apologize to anyone unless I've really done something, right? Coming back to Goldman Sachs, I think one thing you get really good at is holding your nerve in very, very difficult conversations with people who can be slightly, <laughs> I don't want to say aggressive, but intense, mm. you know, good professional setting, right? Yeah. You're speaking to very smart people um, who generally know a hell of a lot more about what you're doing than you do, even if you're the young expert. And I think I was just so... I just knew, Laura, I just knew that. And it, it happened one year later, two million downloads, people using this thing mm -hmm. every single day. And I think, you know, I just, I just knew, and I was so calm. They don't obviously share the whole pitch, yeah, how everything goes. But yeah, I, I think it was just a lot of self-belief. And I think, you know, a lot of the narrative of that episode was around valuation, which to be honest, I think, I was very calm about just because I knew what happens in real life. And I was like, you know, obviously I can't give you 50% of my business or 25% of my business right now, because then I will be uninvestable later for, for any kind of, you know, VC or this kind of deal. So I, I think I was just calm because I knew that, you know, a lot of this narrative wasn't really about the product and, you know, its reception from a consumer's perspective or its validity in the market um, or indeed the market itself. And so I think I just took it in my stride. Um, and I think, you know, to be very honest with you, it was very helpful because again, coming back to this, you come out of Harvard Business School yeah. <laughs> and, now, and you expect things to just flow and you expect things to well, you think I've got the answers. I'm going to get better at you know, perfecting my pitch and I'll get better at the way that I communicate as a, as a CEO. But really, it is very difficult. And so I think I was very grateful for this experience because it's like you kind of get slapped in the face, you know, and these, these questions are really difficult. And I remember I was like, my God, that was, you know, tough. Like I wasn't, you know, I didn't, they didn't break me, but it was really tough. And I was on the train back from Manchester and I was thinking, you know, my God, like this is going to be my life for the next five years, at least. 
And I think today, one of the things I'm really proud of, you know, as, as a woman, above all, because you find your communication style, you find the way to play your edge, is that I'm really good at answering these questions now. I can take a stressful call two minutes before, no prep, and I, I know what I'm talking about. And I think that's a very nice feeling because I think you, we all have a lot of imposter syndrome. You alluded to that early on today, right? Do I have marketing skills? Absolutely not. Do I have product management skills? Absolutely not. Can I design stuff? Absolutely not. My team makes fun of me all the time because I like do PowerPoints and like move logos. And that's what I know. And they're like, girl, get on Canva. What do you, what the hell? <laughs> but I know that I have improved so much mm-hmm. in the last two and a half years since I started this company that that gives me solace to keep going every day because I know that I'm a fast learner. Mm. That's amazing. I find that so inspiring. And it, it seems like also that from what I hear that you're really, really connected to the why of what you're doing. And I think that's something that I feel like with most um, founders and entrepreneurs I talk to, the real thing that also keeps them going is the why they're doing this and the belief in the product or the service that they're selling. And I can really feel that for you too. It's like you're super passionate and you 100% believe in what you're, you're doing. And I'm, I'm sure that that helps so much. I think also it's so funny because we're now at a bit of an inflection point in terms of you know the tech and, and where we have to take it to get to the next level. And I was recently looking back on all of our old designs, which I did myself at the beginning with two of the people that, you know, were were by my side at the beginning of this company. And I'm looking at where we're at now. And I'm like, I cannot believe that we've come this far. And I think that also is so reassuring because I think oftentimes when you're going through this journey, especially if you're a certain type of, you know, human, I, I don't want to fall into all these, you know, stereotypes, but if you are competitive and you are, you know, a little bit alpha or you are very driven to kind of take things to the next level and not every entrepreneur wants to do that. Right. And I'm not saying that an exit or a trade sale or whatever is for every business. And you need to make sure that you are building the right kind of business for you, for your needs, staying true to your vision and and what you wanted, but the latter or the former, sorry, was always what I wanted. I wanted to scale this thing beyond means. And I think now I realize also how much power there is in continuing to evolve the product and that innovation side I think keeps me so hungry Mm. because like you're coming from corporate where innovation is dead it's slow it's like you know a gargantuan machine moving at the pace of like a snail and now it's like two years and all of this has changed and so the ceiling of the possible keeps raising itself exponentially. And I think that is so exciting to be a part of. And I feel very privileged to be in this position. Also very easy to fuck it all up. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course, like in, in, you know, yeah, definitely. It seems like, yeah, this, the sky is the limit. And, you know, you kind of each time hitting, uh, uh, hitting the top, uh, it, it keeps on going. You also uh, touched on a, a very interesting thing earlier around, you know, building your team at the very beginning, trying to find the right, like the right talent for the right price. And I read one of your blog posts, um, which was titled Founder, Team Leader and Woman, which I found really interesting. And I thought, you know, how do you now in your day-to-day business at Wearing, how do you combine all of the three aspects? And what are the choices that you make every day as a leader of your business? What's your priority? I love that. And I think it's something that I think about all the time that, you know, founder, leader and woman sort of juxtaposition, right? Um, and your management style, but also, you know, what I've grown up on, which was everything but that in banking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember at the beginning of the company, I was, um, my partner was investment banking. He was, and this was all during COVID that, that we kind of started, you know, And so I was coming from working crazy hours. He was working a hundred hour weeks every weekend. Like it was mad. Mm. And we were in this like Heidi flat and Hackney together for the first time, by the way, mm. which was also creepy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. put on. <laughs> but I think there was like insane competition. Like I was on my laptop. I'd finish work every day, maybe at 10, you know. And for me, that was like good going. And he was there till 1 a.m. every single night. And I was like, God, I'm failing. I'm I'm now working for myself and I'm slacking. What is this? You know, what is this thing? And I remember trying to be there like on the laptop, trying to compete. 
with mm -hmm. the amount of hours, you know, he was putting in. And I started to realize that, you know, I was messaging my people on Slack at 11. I was, because this is what I knew, right? Mm -hmm. This was my, the culture that I had kind of grown up in. And you know, I started to realize that I wasn't taking lunch breaks. That was not a done thing. I wasn't necessarily going on, you know, walks or, you know, taking time out publicly in my calendar to do any physical activity or mental health, you know, activity, or I wasn't sharing that I was when I was on holiday. I was, oh, I mean, I was always on, mm -hmm. you know, I was on the calls. I was coming into creeping into, you know, Slack messages, gyro messages, Instabug, like mm -hmm. I was all over the show. And, you know, one of my mentors at the time, who is now our chief growth officer, she's an incredible woman. And she said to me, this is, this is toxic. You know, you don't realize that you're doing this because you're so passionate, you care deeply, and you want to help your people, you're a team player. So you're coming in to try and help and like, you're touching a little bit of everything, but you're not setting the right precedent, right? You're, you're, you are responsible for building this culture. And culture is what eats strategy for breakfast. We know this, especially in a high, strong, cash poor, <laughs> yeah. you know, different um sort of startup setting where you're expected to deliver a hell of a lot and yet the boss doesn't even have budget to take you guys out to drinks most times right mm -hmm. and you're all living on the smell of an oil rag and I think after that as we started to hire more people I had this moment I remember we were launching our first version of the proper app in Jan 2022 and my birthday was on the 2nd of Feb and it was end of Jan and I was in the Cotswolds trying to take two days off like the first time I would actually not connect and it was this big crisis with the app we had something you know technical that we had to fix and we were just about to go live with our marketing campaign um, which was incidentally a big tube campaign an out of office um, out of home sorry campaign that we paid a lot of money for and I was walking in the forest with my headphones, no reception, British countryside. And my team was like, okay, I'm sorry. We just need you on five minutes. I know you're on holiday, blah, blah. And I just, I just stopped. And I was like, this is it. I'm done. Yeah. You guys can fix this. You have what it takes. We've worked on building you up as, as individuals with, you know, minds and brains and intuition. You got this. I'm hanging up. And I think from that point onwards, I started to spend a lot more time trying to think about how can I be an authentic founder, continue to drive that vision, continue to be the person who believes, the person who hides a lot of the stress behind the scenes, who's always positive, um, you know, to, to, to inspire people to join this wardrobe revolution that we're building, right, and make things feel greater than life. And then transition into a leader, you know, who is able to, again, be really supportive. Um, I had to do a lot of work on myself to be a little bit more, I suppose, not draconian, but keep accountability live whilst transitioning into the third bucket, which was, you know, leading as a woman, leading with intuition, leading with your gut um, and leading as an empath, which I was very interested in doing. And I think, I hope I've tried to get all three right now to be able to be someone that my people can come to me for any issue that they might be having, but it's also someone who pays for the drinks, takes mm. them out on a team night, puts them in a cab to, to take them home mm. uh, and, and, and treats them fairly in terms of the culture that we've built. And, you know, I think um, we're going to announce this quite soon, but, you know, we're now moving to four day work week. We've got unlimited holidays um we I have things that. called duvet days if you look and feel like me today on a friday you can work from bed or you can say i'm not in a you know in the right mindset i'm not mm. going to work this morning i will pull some hours later today maybe bake it up on the weekend but a culture of, of of trust with accountability and i think that combination of those three words really made it work for me ah that's my jam <laughs> i love that uh, i think that's so amazing that you're doing that because, as you said, startup culture um, can get really quickly, really toxic um, because it's all about growth. It's all about making money, finding funding, finding the right people. And sometimes we all forget about that unity and that sense of like building a team for the future as well. And how do we actually do that so that the business itself is sustainable? Um, and I think that's so, so important that you're doing that. I'm so glad that's that's, you know, that's also why um, I love talking to entrepreneurs like you and kind of 
working in culture too is um, it's because we need more entrepreneurs and founders like you that actually set the examples. And, you know, it's not about being perfect or finding all the solutions right away, but at least trying and making sure that, you know, you reflect on yourself as a founder, as a leader, and kind of try, like, test and learn and try to find the right solutions for your team so that your business ultimately is sustainable. I think it's a fine line. You know, we don't, I don't always get it right. And I still mm. have a lot to learn. I think it is something that, you know, I now have decided to spend a lot more time thinking about and trying to perfect because it really does make or break. And I think it's very difficult, especially um, when you're completely remote, right? We, we were remote for two and a half years. Yeah. I think now we're starting to think a little bit more about an office culture. How do we do that? How do we basically bring that about for increased creative abrasion without taking away the freedom of, you know, sometimes being able to work from home, being more productive, experimenting with no call days, all these different things that, you know, you read about all the time in Harvard Business Review and, you know, um, all the big kind of strategy publications. But mm. it also is really about finding what works for your culture, which I think mm. wasn't something that I thought about initially. I was like, okay, there's a playbook, right? Yeah. <laughs> You're like the tech bros. Yeah. Or you're like, yeah, the culture code. <laughs> exactly. Like, where's the handbook? You yeah, know, yeah. call me up and find it. But yeah, I think we're slowly getting to a really good place now. That's so great. What tips would you give to your younger self now looking back as, you know, dreaming of working in politics and African histories um, and now building such a successful business? What tips would you give to your younger self? Okay, well, I'll give you three. One practical, which is strive to get better at what you're already really good at, rather than trying to improve your weaknesses. Yes. Um, yes. I found that I know what my superpowers are and honing those skills makes me really, really invaluable. Um, when I try to do things and get better at things that, you know, I can employ someone to do a thousand times better than I can. And the delta of the effort put in for the output um, improvements just, just isn't worth it, really. It doesn't mean you can't be a well-rounded person. I think it just means you've got to be really pragmatic about what do you do really well and what do you want to keep growing and getting better at? And I think coming back to culture, um, you start as a founder, you do everything, right? I built the website. I would do all the coffee. I would do all the, you know, it, it, that that's sort of how you start. And very quickly, I realized that, especially when you're working with young creative people, they sometimes can blow your socks off, which I wasn't exposed to in a corporate background. It was like very hierarchical and like, you know, so I started to trust and let go. And I would say that's probably number two in terms of the tips is really honing your self-belief. Because especially if I'm talking to my younger self, who was about to become an entrepreneur, I think I spent a lot of time not understanding how to deal with stress, not thinking that I was enough, not thinking that things were going to be all right, because you're constantly faced with like the cliff, right? And the cliff starts to come closer and closer and closer every single day. Um, and I think it sounds very cheesy, but that mental health component is incredibly important. And so the second tip really is trying to find how you can increase your self-belief. And that might be something very silly, right? For me, it might be saying, I'm going to take bachata or salsa lessons, or I'm going to go and be so good at boxing in my extra time that like I come back feeling energized about my potential and my relationship to my mind, my soul, and my body is one of nurture because my younger self was all about working until I dropped. I was a carer, I was working in banking, and now it was my startup. It was always like, go, 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 nose down, keep going until you burn out. But you are the most valuable asset to your company, right? And it's not about equity ownership. It's about if the vision isn't there, if you cannot lead and be a successful culture, you know, accelerator, then what are we doing? You know, and I think the third tip is 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 probably coming back to our original discussion. And that is I can't remember the exact quote, but I think it is you are a product of the seven people you are around most. And I hate to break it to my younger self, but there's some people that you hang out with that are not helping you grow. 
and that are not feeding you and that are not in it for you to win it. So how can you try to think critically, emotionally, about who's filling your cup in all these different ways um, and try to surround yourself with those people and people who are ultimately successful in the definition of success that you have, right? I am not saying surround yourself by Fortune 500 CEOs that might make you sick if you are already stressed and trying to do the best you can. It's just about balance. Wow, that gave me chills, <laughs> literally. I feel so emotional right now. I think that that hit me really hard. Um, and I'm definitely going to reflect on that because I think that's super powerful. Thank you for sharing that. So after all the things that we talked about today, what would you say is your superpower? Woo! <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I am a bulldozer. Um, I don't know if you've ever <laughs> seen those like cement rollers, yeah. but like keep going and like <laughs> destroy everything in their path um no I think it's a positive spin on that I think I'm a I'm a really really good people's person um I can extract information I can negotiate I can smooth like I, I can schmooze you know I can mm -hmm. I can get it done and my friend one of my best friends the one that I was mentioning who also is a, a beauty tech founder she said to me you are an extractor and I was like What do you mean? I thought I was a kind person. Yeah. I mean, I thought of myself. Do you mean I'm draining that. people? <laughs> like I thought I'd pay it forward. I'm, you know, I'm very. Um, I think one of the big things in my life is honor, and you know, when you give your word, you are bound to do that. Help others. It was a big legacy thing again from my father, who was of another generation. But when she said that, something, she was obviously like, I don't mean it. That's not the word. But that is your superpower. You are able to convince, you're able to sway, you're able to talk, you're able to facilitate. Um, and that social side of things is so important when you're looking at a CEO, doing PR, speaking opportunities, talking to investors, talking to your board, talking to your community. You need to be able to sell, sway and convince and promote a dream, right? Mm. That is what I'm good at. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Please don't title the title of this podcast, The Extractor. <laughs> no, I won't. There are so many other interesting things about our conversation today. Definitely. Um, and I'm not doing that kind of clickbait thing. I'm, I'm, I really want to uh, bring value to people as well while listening to our conversation. And I think there are so many other <laughs> valuable things that you said today. So... Um, Who would you like to hear from next as, you know, a change maker in this podcast? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, there's so many female founders that I love and applaud. I could not choose. Um, so I'm going to give you a couple and you will hopefully be able to get a series of events yeah. from this. Um, I would see uh, probably my friend Gina, who's building Glaze, the beauty tech startup that I mentioned. She's formidable. I would also say Josephine Phillips from Sojo um, and maybe Victoria Pru from her. I really admire all of those businesses, especially the women who are backing them. Mm. Because I think, again, at the end of the day, what's interesting in a podcast is not necessarily the most successful entrepreneur or the one who won or the market mm. perceived to be winning it but it's the woman behind it. Mm. It's the depth of her character, her experiences, and, and you know what she's been able to do with her time on this earth. Coming back to that first question about identity and, and who we are, um, I think all three of these women are very interesting people. Yeah, that's, that's so true. And that's exactly what I want to bring light on in this podcast. It's not about having the latest, most successful entrepreneur or founder um, to, to talk about what they've done. It's talking about those founders and female founders who are you know, hustling and they're like being challenged and how are they overcoming that and who they are and what makes them who they are today and, you know, how they are dealing with trying at least to build a successful business. Bianca, thank you again so, so much for today and for this conversation. Really, I learned so much uh, and I'm sure that a couple of the things that you said, I'm going to write it down, put them as posted somewhere <laughs> to remind them as like my mentor. And I'm sure that you've helped a lot of listeners as well. I, I almost feel, feel a bit emotional from this conversation. I don't know why, but you seem like a very caring person um, and I find that amazing knowing that uh, knowing your experience and journey so yeah thank you so much for your time and generosity really likewise Laura thank you so much for having me it's been an absolute privilege thank you bye bye 
Follow the Wonder Walkers podcast so that every two weeks you can get notified when a new episode is out. And I must say, if you don't, that's okay. But that would be a big miss because we have more inspiring and powerful guests to come. So let's meet up in two weeks for a new episode of Wonder Walkers, a podcast that transports you into the world of our modern change catalysts and empowers you too to change the world. This podcast is created and hosted by me, Laura Warnod, founder of The Culture Cabinet. Thank you to Content is Queen for producing the podcast. But above all, thank you for listening. See you soon. <laughs>